Acts 21. The book of Acts is the history book of the New Testament uh, of the Bible. It talks about uh, the first probably 30 or 40 years of the early church. The first 12 chapters revolve around the ministry of the apostle Peter. By about chapter 13, that, that focus switches from Peter to the apostle Paul. And for, for a long, long time, we have been discussing the first three missionaries of the apostle Paul. It has encompassed about 20 years of time in his life. We've gone from the time he got saved, how God uh, began to work in his life. He grew in grace and God separated he and Barnabas to go out and start planting churches uh, all around the Mediterranean world. Uh, Paul is generally considered to be the first missionary ever sent out by a church. Can anybody remember what church he was sent out of to start the work of missions? What was it? Not Jerusalem. Begins with the letter A. Antioch. Okay, and so he would go out for a few years. He would, he would start churches and then backtrack, come back to Antioch and report, uh, be there for a while, and then, then he would go back out and revisit the churches he started the first time, start a bunch of other ones, and then come back, and he's done that now three different times. In Acts chapter uh, 21, we see that Paul has a burden to go back to the city of Jerusalem. So he is finishing that third missionary journey. Uh, we followed him from uh, verses 1 down through verse 16 last week. Um, and we had the map up here and, and sort of worked through it, uh, his steps as he uh, made his way there. One of the things we've, we've seen is in this last journey, Paul is very, very burdened about the necessity that he ought to go back to Jerusalem. Um, that is where his history with us begins before he even became a Christian. Uh, then he was a persecutor of believers. Jerusalem is where the first church was located um, and, and so forth. And uh, uh, we learned in chapter 20, Paul says, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem. Yet everywhere Paul went, the Holy Spirit sent people to witness him, to, to, to uh, give him the message that bonds and afflictions were waiting for him there. It was not that God was telling him, don't go. It was really that God was preparing him, saying, Paul, you're going to be there, but I want you to understand there's going to be some difficulties. Paul would not be dissuaded from that. Uh, he, he couldn't be discouraged from that. He, he truly believed that that's where God wanted him to be. And in chapter 21, we saw a similar thing that happened. Um, the Bible says that they, they landed at Tyre in verse 3, verse 4. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. We looked at this last week. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit was saying, don't go. It was the Holy Spirit saying, you need to understand perils are going to await you there, uh, and so forth. Uh, we saw that in um, uh, Caesarea, look at verse 10. We looked at this last week. When he was, um, as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Prophecy was still a spiritual gift that was functioning at that time in the early church. 
The New Testament had not been completely written yet. Only a few books uh, had been given. And so prophecy was a spiritual gift. It was a sign gift. And this man, Agabus, was a prophet. We saw him in chapter 11. He gave forth a prophecy that there was going to be a worldwide famine, a dearth uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And he, he, uh, he proclaimed that, giving God's people time to prepare. Remember Y2K? And everybody, you know, we're all stocking up on canned goods and, and candles and all that kind of stuff, and it didn't happen. Well, Agabus' prophecy did come to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar, um, and God's people had that opportunity to be ready for that. So Agabus is a prophet of God. Uh, his ministry is real, and he come, came down, verse 11, when it was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle. Remember, that's that long strip of cloth uh, that, that people would wear around their, their waist. Uh, and they would use that, wrap it around several times to hold their garments together, keep them out of the way when they're working, when they're running, and so forth. Um, and he took that that belonged to the Apostle Paul. The Bible says he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is a prophecy coming from a man who's proven to be a real prophet of God. Verse 12, when we heard these things, that would be Luke who is writing the, the book of Acts and all of Paul's companions, uh, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. They don't want him to go. They want him to go, go somewhere else. Uh, everywhere you're going, you're hearing that Jerusalem's going to be filled with peril and difficulty for you. Look at Paul's answer, verse 13. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was once again very, very adamant about this. Going back one more time to chapter 20, verse, 20, um, verse 22. Now, uh, this is Paul talking to the elders at Ephesus. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You know, it's one thing to follow the Lord's leadership in our life, to try to live for God, to try to be the Christian that God would have us to be. And then we encounter various trials and difficulties along the way. Uh, I was speaking to uh, a bunch of Bible college students yesterday uh, afternoon uh, in the chapel service, and uh, it, it, being with them reminded me of 1975 when I was a freshman in Bible college. I was 17 years old, and uh, I knew God had called me to preach, and, and I had surrendered my life to whatever the Lord wanted, but then it was all a big mystery to me. I didn't know if God wanted me to be a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist, a youth pastor. I, I had no idea what exactly God wanted me to do. 
I also had no idea of all the details that were going to be a part of the, you know, the last 45, uh, 40, I guess 48 years of my life, something like that. Uh, maybe if I had, I might have thought twice about it. Uh, there have been some wonderful times. I'm not complaining about serving the Lord, but I'm not going to lie. There have been some hard times. Uh, there, there, there have been some difficult and some dark days, some of them related to the work of the ministry and some of them just to life in general. The average person, if we were to get the rundown of everything that was going to happen, you know, out there in the future, if we follow God, I think the average person would think twice and maybe a lot, a lot of us would just turn around and go the other way and say, I think I'll just do something else. Uh, Paul's testimony stands out in a stellar fashion to us because here's a man who knew that by following the Lord's leadership, he was bound in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. He believed with all of his heart that that was part of the ministry God had for him. We looked last week in Acts 9 when he first got saved and Ananias was to come and pray over him. Uh, one of the messages God had for Paul was that he was going to carry the gospel to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and before kings, and that there were, he was going to suffer many things for the kingdom of God's sake. So Paul knew from the get-go that his service to the Lord was going to be very costly. But you look at this man, and you don't see a man that's shrinking back. Uh, today we want everything easy, don't we? Uh, we, we want everything at, at, at the, the least amount of discomfort or inconvenience to us uh, and so forth. Uh, Paul is giving us that example. None of these things move me. I'm just going to keep going forward to Christ. Verse 14, when he would not be persuaded, we cease. They, they, they said, okay, he's, he's, uh, his mind is made up saying the will of the Lord be done. Paul was committed to the will of God, and now these people, his, his friends, these people that cared about him, they were also saying, we're just going to place this in God's hands, the will of the Lord be done. To their credit, that was a wise thing to do. Be very careful about presuming that you know God's will for anybody else besides yourself. I believe it's safe to say that it's uh, God's will for everybody to hear the gospel, how many would agree with that? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I also believe that God would have everybody to get saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Doesn't mean everybody's gonna become a Christian. Doesn't mean everybody's gonna get saved, but God sure would love that, wouldn't he? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, God's going to call some people to preach and, and God's going to call some people to be missionaries. God's going to call some to be teachers. God's going to call some to be doctors or lawyers or policemen, uh, that type of thing. Be very, very careful about presuming beyond, uh, you know, God wants us all to be right with God. God wants us to love him. God wants us to love one another. That's the will of God. That's found in the word of God. But be very, very careful presuming that I know the will of God for anybody else besides myself. Uh, so these people put it in the Lord's hand and that was wise. We're going to back up and then we're going to try to move forward a little bit tonight. Uh, look, if you would, please, in verse number uh, seven. 
When we had finished our course from Tyre, that was an island place. That's where they found those Christians. They prayed with them on the shore um, and, and so forth. Uh, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren. That's, a, that's another city on the coast, and they found some Christians there. They abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea. They're back in the Holy Land. They're in Palestine. When you take a tour of Israel, um, oftentimes you today you will fly into Tel Aviv. And one of the first places that just about any tour that I'm aware of, they will start you out on the very next morning will be the city or the ruins of this place called Caesarea. Caesarea was at one time a giant swamp land. It was like the Everglades of the promised land, uh, minus crocodiles, alligators, that type of thing. King Herod drained that swamp. Um, and you're going back 2,000 years ago. It was a feat of engineering that even today uh, people marvel that he could do it. He drained the entire thing. He brought soil and, and rock in and built it up just a little bit. Uh, there was no natural harbor there. So somehow they figured out how to dredge uh, the water's edge out, and they made a man-made harbor. Uh, they built stone quays out around in a pattern uh, to keep uh, that, that area from filling back in so Roman ships could come in there. Uh, they built a large hippodrome, which is like an outdoor racetrack. Uh, Herod built a palace there. Uh, they built an amphitheater. It was built 2,000 years ago. It is still being used today. Herod uh, had an aqueduct that came from Lebanon down from the mountains into Caesarea, which, by the way, still has water running in it today. It was a major feat of engineering, and in order to gain favor with the emperor of Rome, he named it Caesarea after Caesar, hence the name. Uh, it was a metropolitan city. It was a, uh, it was a wealthy city. Um, it, it was a city that had... Uh, really all the attractions uh, that anybody could want, a very powerful type city. Um, and that's where Paul and his company came. And the Bible says in verse eight, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. The title evangelist is a biblical term. Keep your place here. Can I get you to find Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And the Bible says in verse number 11, and he, that is the Lord, gave some apostles. An apostle was an eyewitness of the ministry of Christ, death, burial, and his resurrection. With that said, are there, are there any apostles living today? If they are, they're really, really old. They had to be an eyewitness of that. Uh, he gave some apostles and some prophets. Remember, we talked about Agabus had that, that ability of prophesying, knowing the future. And some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. 
Pastors and teachers is all put together. That's, that's my title. That's my ministering role. I pastor a local church. I, I teach the Bible here, uh, oversee the work of the ministry. An evangelist is a preacher, but he doesn't have one church that he pastors and stays in. He, uh, an evangelist generally moves from church to church, ministering to many churches rather than one. We've had evangelists in here over the years and down through the centuries, uh, there have been men that have been greatly used of God in that respect. Uh, So we know evangelist is a biblical office. Back in Acts 21, this man Philip is the only person in the Bible who is called an evangelist. He's the only one that carries that title. There were many, many that carried the title prophet. Uh, There were uh, a a little more than a dozen that carried the title apostle, uh, but he's the only one that is named as an evangelist, and he says, which was one of the seven. Now, to help you understand why God's putting that in there, there are two men in the New Testament named Philip. Okay, we've got this guy. Can anybody remember who the other guy named Philip was? He was one of the original 12 disciples of Christ. Uh, Turn back to John chapter 14. We see him um, come into play here, John 14. This is um, that great passage, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, ye believe in God believe also in me and my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas, that's one of the uh, original disciples, saith unto him, Lord, We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Can I just stop there for a moment? We tend to criticize the the disciples or the apostles because they didn't understand everything, and they had questions like Thomas. Uh, You know, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and, and so on and so forth. We know what Jesus was talking about. We have the full gospel message there and the, the full course of the Bible. But understand, these, these men were just beginning to figure some of this out. Their understanding was not complete. Uh, Thomas wasn't sure if Jesus was talking about heaven or some other place. That's why he said, we, I, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What a clear, wonderful verse about salvation. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. Made it very clear, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Um, Nobody's gonna go to heaven because they were a Baptist. Nobody's gonna go to heaven because they were good. Nobody's gonna go to heaven because they gave money. It's gonna be because of Jesus Christ, period. He said, no man... um, cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Here's that, that Philip, the apostle. 
Um, okay, okay, uh, we've seen the Father? How, how did we see the Father? They're trying to figure out all this doctrine. They'll get it sooner or later. Um, Jesus saith unto them, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? And he's going to go on and explain and help Philip understand this. So there's Philip of the original 12. Acts 20 says that Philip the evangelist was one of the seven. Anybody know where that comes from? One of the seven. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. You'll know the minute you get there. It's just been 400 years since we started Acts chapter 6. Verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians, that's the Greek people, against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the 12, Philip would have been a part of them, the, the Philip from John 14. The 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, a good testimony, a good reputation, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and next name? Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These are believed to be the first deacons. And Philip was one of those. So when it says he was one of the seven, this is it. This is the first time we meet him. Um, and God distinguishes it so that we know it's not Philip, the, the, one of the 12 disciples who became an apostle, but, but the uh, Philip we met in Acts chapter 6. Go back. Acts chapter 21. So they meet Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Verse 9, and the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. An unusual verse. An unusual verse. The gift of prophecy. The ability to foretell future events. That's what Agabus did uh, in chapter 11 and again here in uh, chapter 21. But now it tells us this man, Philip, has four daughters. They're virgins. They're pure. They're chaste. Uh, they, they may be younger, such as in their late teens, maybe early 20s. They've not yet been married. Um, uh, and the Bible also says they did prophesy. They did prophesy. To us, that sounds a little strange because, you know, we understand women aren't supposed to uh, preach and usurp authority over men, uh, that type of thing. But uh, please understand, the sign gifts were still very active at this time in the book of Acts. The sign gifts were those signs, we, we studied it in Hebrews, um, that were given to confirm the words of the apostles. Speaking in tongues was a sign gift. Uh, they were given the ability to supernaturally speak in a language that they did not know and someone else heard the word of God in that language. That was a sign gift. 
there was what was called the word of knowledge. Um, in, in verse number four of our chapter, in finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem, a word of knowledge. That is where God is giving someone a message for somebody else. And then there's the gift of prophecy, the ability to foretell future events. And according to uh, the book of Acts, these four daughters of Philip had the gift of prophecy. Now, lest you think that's a mistake, hold your place here and see if you can find the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, then Joel. Joel chapter, how many found it? How many are still looking? How many want to know where it's at in your index? That's where if you have your Bible on your phone, I guess it's a lot easier. You can just type it in and you're there. Um, Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. This is the Lord speaking. This is an Old Testament reference. That I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall what? Prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Does anybody know where else Joel's prophecy is quoted in the Bible? Good luck. It's not in the Gospels. Brother Ron, Acts chapter 2. You were so close, Mrs. Gerber. Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached, remember, um, uh, Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the world for that great feast of Pentecost. Um, they spoke in multiple different languages. I think there were 13 different nations represented there. And on that day, the Holy Spirit uh, filled all of those first 120 believers. The Bible says they spake with other tongues. They didn't babble. They didn't fall on the floor and, and, and roll around, and, you know, flopping like a fish. The Bible is very clear that, that the, the listeners, they said, we've heard every man in our own language, our own tongue wherein we were born, the wonderful works of God. Um, the, the people were wondering what in the world this is all about. Verse 14, Acts 2, 14. But Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the verses we just read. And it shall come to pass, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall what? Prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall what? prophesy. So 
when we see the four daughters of Philip the evangelist, we see that, that they have been given this spiritual gift. We're not exactly sure. The Bible tells us no more about it. We don't know how they, they did this. Uh, we don't know if uh, God gave them specific uh, messages to the, their local church about uh, events to come or, or things like that. All we know is that um, these, these four young ladies, uh, they were pure, they were chaste young ladies, obviously spirit-filled young ladies, spiritual young ladies, and they had this gift of prophecy. Um, for sake of time tonight, I, I won't go much through it, but in the Bible, there were other other uh, women that were called prophets or prophetesses. We think of, you know, prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, and Daniel, and Ezekiel, and, and so forth. Uh, but there were, there were some, some ladies that the Bible called prophets or prophetesses, the feminine version. Does anybody know any of them offhand? Deborah in the book of Judges, I'm gonna give you a reference and you can look it up on your own. It's Judges 4.4. Um, during the period of the Judges, this lady, Deborah, was a prophetess. Can anybody name another lady? Stuart. Miriam, Moses' sister. Uh, she was called a prophetess. Exodus 15.20. Um, anybody else? I heard a voice. I don't know where it came from. Abigail? No, she's a good lady, but she did not, she was not a prophet. Huldah, H-U-L-D-A-H. Uh, we know very little about her, but you read about her in 2 Kings 22, 14. She is just listed as a prophetess. Um, the, the other, one of the others you might not uh, be able to guess at, Isaiah's wife was called a prophetess. Um, not just because she was the wife of a prophet. Apparently, uh, God spoke uh, through her as well. In the New Testament, besides these four daughters of Philip, there's one other lady that's called a prophetess. Anna, go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. When Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple when he was... Um, a month and a half or so old uh, to dedicate him. Uh, the Bible says in verse 36, and there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about four score and four years, 84 years. So it, it appears she'd been married for seven years. Her husband died and uh, another 84 years had gone by. So that puts her at about 91. Add to that, however old she was when she got married, she's well over 100 years of age. Uh, and yet the Bible gives her the title in verse 36 as a prophetess. Uh, now we see a little bit of her ministry. Verse 38, she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in, Jer in Jerusalem. So Anna proclaimed to everybody in Jerusalem that the Messiah came because she, she saw him in the temple that day when Joseph and Mary brought him in. 
Back to Acts 21. These are simple points of our understanding, the passage of scripture uh, and so forth. As far as the gift of prophecy, uh, we know that the, prof the sign gifts were given to confirm the word of the apostles. Okay, the, the, the written word had not been given yet, and so the sign gifts were given for that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and then we're going to try to move on a little bit here further in Acts chapter 21. 1 Corinthians 13. It's called the, often the love chapter of the Bible. The word charity is the Bible word for that deep, abiding, selfless, Christ-like type of love. 1 Corinthians 13 is nestled between two very long chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. If you remember in our study of 1 Corinthians, uh, the church at Corinth was all messed up on the issue of speaking in tongues. At that time, it was still a viable gift, but they decided that those that spoke in tongues were more spiritual than anybody else, um, and they tended to look down on people, and it was just another way for them to have division and strife in the church. And Paul was helping them understand that, that uh, there were multiple different kinds of gifts. Speaking in tongues was one. Um, the word of knowledge, the gift of helps. It's amazing, they, in Corinth, they all wanted the gift of tongues, but they didn't want to help. They didn't want to do that. The gift of governments, that would be leadership, organizing. And we walked through all of those things, but they were all messed up on this matter of speaking in tongues. And, and church was, for them, sort of a free-for-all. Just everybody standing up at the same time trying to shout over each other, no, no, it's my turn, that type of thing. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was chaos. And God's never in that. Um, and, and so right in the middle of all of this, Paul is calling these people to a halt. He ends chapter 12 saying, covet earnestly the best gifts. It's fine to want a gift. It's fine to want to serve God. It's, it's fine for you to want to be used of God. He said, yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Verse one, chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling symbol. Boy, that hit right to where they were living because they were consumed with this matter of speaking in tongues. And as I said, church was just a chaotic free-for-all for them. Um, he said, I could speak with the tongues. I could speak every language known to man. I don't have that gift. I barely speak English. I mean, on a good day, I speak English. He said, if I could speak all the tongues of men and I could even speak the language of angels, but I have not charity. I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Could you imagine an orchestra and the only, only instruments are cymbals? The entire orchestra. And the conductor taps his little, you know, stick on the, the, the thing and he looks around. Clang, clang, clang. Can you, can you even imagine? You know, it's like pass the Tylenol, please. Um, he said, uh, that's, that's what it is when you try to exercise your spiritual gift, but it's empty of charity. It's empty of that divine love in your heart. You're just a noise. He says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, some of the other sign gifts, 
though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. There are people who think they, because they can quote more Bible than anybody else and they always win at Bible trivia that somehow they're more spiritual. Paul said, you can have all that, but if you don't have charity, and charity is, is always an outward thing. It's always for the benefit of other people. He said, I could have all of those, those gifts, but if I don't have charity, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. There are, down through history, just many people, churches all over the place been afflicted with people. Do you know how much money I give? Do you know how this church wouldn't make it if it wasn't blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. Thank you for giving. That's a great thing. But he said, if you have not charity, that profits you nothing. It's, it, it, it's not what you think it is. He says, charity suffereth long and is kind. Long suffering, it's patient. It puts up with other people and is still kind. I know people can't be kind on a good day, let alone on a bad day. Charity puts up with a lot of nonsense and a lot of heartache and, and hardships from others, and it stays kind. Charity envieth not. Charity's not looking around saying, hey, 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 he, pastor mentioned that person, but didn't, he didn't mention me. Uh, that person got, got asked to do this, and how come I didn't? Charity doesn't get, get all caught up in envy and in, in, in jealousy. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. Charity isn't always out there talking about how awesome it is. Doth not behave itself unseemly. It, it, it behaves in a proper Christian manner. Seeketh not her own, is not looking out for number one, is not easily provoked, does not have a hair-triggered temper. Thinketh no evils, not looking around saying, yeah, I, I saw him looking at me during church. He probably hates me. Charity doesn't do that. It's not second-guessing other people. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. All said, charity just, does, just doesn't give up on people. People like to give up on people, especially if they've disappointed us. We want to kick them to the curb. Biblical charity doesn't do that. There were people who didn't want Saul of Tarsus to have a chance at all, but Barnabas wouldn't give up on him. Even Saul, even the apostle Paul gave up on John Mark. Barnabas wouldn't do that. And, and Paul realized his mistake, and there came a time in his life when he owned up to that. Um, charity is an amazing thing. Verse 8, charity never faileth. Charity never faileth. It, it just always, it's always in season. It's always a good time to have charity. It's always a good day to love. Always. Charity never faileth. But notice this, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. There's gonna come a day when prophecies are gonna end. There'll be no more given. We know that from Hebrews 2, that's because the word of God would be given in, in fullness. Whether there be tongues, 
they shall cease. Won't need those sign gifts. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be vanish away. And it's not talking about we don't learn anything anymore. It, it means that uh, God gives us something that wasn't previously revealed in the Word of God because we've got all of the Word of God now that there is. We've got that which is perfect. So I'm taking the time to go over this because we want to understand when we look at back in Acts 20 at these these daughters of Philip that, prof, that did prophesy, it was a valid spiritual gift in that day and age. These young ladies, Joel told us it would be on that their, their sons and their daughters would prophesy. So this is not any contradiction of scripture. If you will, it is a fulfillment of the, prophet, uh, the prophecy of Joel. Is everybody okay on that? Um, Keeping our, our, our thoughts back in 1 Corinthians 13, even if you've turned back to Acts 21, which I'd like you to do, think of that little phrase, charity never faileth. It's always a good day to love somebody. It's always a good day not to give up on somebody. Because just by the time you give up, you're going to find out that God didn't, not even a little bit. When I was a brand new Christian in 1972, it was a little Christian bookstore in our town, and uh, I discovered that, and uh, I went in, and as a new Christian, I was very excited about my Christian faith. I love to read and so forth, and I, I picked up a, uh, a little book uh, in there, and it was called The Persecutor, um, and um, it, it was about a guy's last name was Kordakov. He was a uh, Russian KGB official. Um, and this was back in the days of communism in the, the, the 40s and the 50s and, and so forth uh, in communist Russia. Um, this, this young man was, uh, uh, if you will, an Olympic level athlete, uh, very, very well known. And he is a guy that could move about in society and everyone would, would welcome him and respect him just simply because of, of his ability and the glory he brought to uh, Mother Russia. But the entire time, he was a KGB operative. Um, during communism in Russia, if you understand it, churches were outlawed, Bibles were outlawed. Pastors were thrown into the gulags and, and the torture and the, 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 the persecution of, of believers was just... You want to understand it, read Alex Solzhenitsyn's books, The Gulag Archipelago, and you'll find out how terrible life was in that time. Um, this young man, one of his jobs was to infiltrate an underground church. And that's what he did. And, of course, they recognized him, no one knowing that he's KGB, and he knew how to pretend he was, uh, you know, a, a seeker and a Christian or whatever and so forth. And he came in, and he got to know these people. He spent weeks and weeks with them. Um, they, had, they had codes as to where the next meeting would be held. They never met in the same place, uh, two services in a row, um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they were never all there at the same time. There was just little groups here and there and so forth. So he would just go, and they, they had no idea the whole time he's taken down names. He knew who the pastor was. He, he, uh, the whole nine yards, he, he recorded the addresses of meeting places. When they felt like he had enough information uh, on all of these believers, they raided the churches. And uh, he came in with 
the KGB no longer pretending to be one of them. And uh, they're, they're, they're taking these people, they're beating them, uh, they're, they're putting them out into the wagons, out in you know, the, the, the vans or whatever, they're going to drive them off to prison. The pastor's daughter of the particular group that he was meeting with was a 16-year-old girl. Um, and, uh, the, you know, this young man, was he was in his uh, early 20s, so there wasn't that much of a different uh, difference in their age and so forth. And uh, that girl had been, been punched in the mouth that night. She had been kicked in the stomach. And uh, he, uh, he himself grabbed her by her hair to drag her out to the waiting van to haul her off. And to his utter amazement, she didn't curse at him. She didn't call down the wrath of God on him. She said, God loves you. And God wants you to know him. And I'm going to be praying for you. And of course, at the time, it just made him angry. And he gave her a swift kick and he shoved her in the van. But by his own testimony, he could not get away from that. If she'd have cursed at him, He'd have just walked away and said, yeah, that's what those Christians are like. But he'd never met anybody like that. See, the world's full of haters. The world's full of it. The world's full of people holding grudges. The, the world's full of all that kind of stuff. The world needs to see somebody who really personifies biblical charity. So we're, we're going to stop there.